Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I recently joined staff and I help lead the operations team here at Crossroads, and I'm grateful to be with you this morning. A few weeks ago, I was driving in my car with my seven-year-old son, Conrad, in the back seat. And as we were driving, my son said this. He says, hey, dad. And then after a few moments, I was thinking to myself, okay, what could this be? This is either a problem. This is something's damaged. He's hurt. Uh, It's probably something that he and I are going to have to talk about to make sure our story is straight for mom. That's probably what's going to have to happen. But instead, my son said something a little bit more profound. He said, hey, dad, I wonder what God looks like up close. Hey, dad, I wonder what God looks like up close. And I'll be honest, that statement has resonated in my mind these last several weeks. What does God look like up close? What does he look like up close? And my mind continues to go to the sermon series we've been working through, this Jesus I never knew, because isn't that what we've been trying to do? Is to see Jesus up close, to take a step closer, to not stand at a distance, but actually see what the scriptures have to say about him. And this morning, we're gonna try to do the very same thing as we consider the mission of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? That's the first question we're gonna try to answer this morning. What did Jesus come to do? The second question we're gonna try to answer is, what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? So this morning, I wanna welcome you here I'm grateful that you're here, but I also wanna say this is what we do on Sunday morning is not just a routine. We are here to be in the presence of God. We are seeking his presence and we're here to hear from him, not from me. So would you pray with me? Father, we are here to hear from you and we wanna eliminate the distance between us and Jesus. So would you give us new eyes to see, soften our hearts, open our minds to what you would have to say to us this morning. We are here for you and our prayer is in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're here to consider the mission of Jesus. And I think a proper way to start is to recognize that throughout all of history, people have been asking the question, what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? We're asking that question now. And even during Jesus' earthly ministry, the question was being asked, what did Jesus come to do? I mean, think about the religious leaders. When Jesus shows up, aren't they standing off to the side saying, who is this guy? What is he up to? What is he doing? Or the crowds, as they are seeing the miracles, as they're eating food and they're seeing Jesus interact with them, they're wondering like, who, who is he? He's preaching with authority. He's got my attention, but what is he up to? Or take the disciples, those people that Jesus interacted with, he chose them and they, they got to see him in these special ways, but even they were wondering, what is Jesus up to? It's, so, it's as though everyone is standing off to the side with a buddy saying, hey, do you know what this whole parables, miracles, kingdom talk is about? What is he up to? I find the disciples especially interesting because Jesus spent the most time with them, walked from city to city with them, explained the parables that no one else got to understand. They saw the miracles up close, and yet it seems like when you look at their life during Jesus' ministry that they were probably the most confused of anyone else. I mean, think about when Jesus is explaining, hey, I'm gonna have to die, and then three days later, I'm gonna raise again. What What does Peter do? Jesus, come over here, come over here. Like, dude, that's not what you came to do. I'm telling you, okay? Peter was confused. Or think about when Jesus is describing what is what the kingdom is gonna be like, he says, I came to serve and not to be served. He washes the disciples' feet. What are James and John doing? They're over here saying, hey, mom, 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 could you talk to Jesus about what position we get in the kingdom? That's what we're about. Okay, they're confused. Or think about at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, after his death, burial, resurrection, he spends 40 days with the people and with his disciples. He's explaining to them that he's gonna have to leave and the helper is going to come. And when Jesus begins to ascend, what are the disciples doing? Hey, where's he going? What's this? I thought he was going to stay. I thought they were confused. Looking at the disciples, it makes me wonder how they missed it. If anyone had a close-up look at Jesus, they did. Yet for them, there was a part of Jesus that they didn't seem to know. 
And for us this morning, we don't want that to be true of us. We wanna see Jesus and his mission as Christ intended. So first, is there anything that we can learn from the disciples? Well, I think there is, there is. I think part of the reason why they missed it is they had read their Bibles, their Hebrew Bibles, which is just our Old Testament, same books, just different order. And they'd inserted their own expectations for what the Messiah, what Jesus was supposed to be doing, who he was supposed to be talking to, where he was supposed to go, what his kingdom was supposed to look like. And so when Jesus shows up, he's constantly having to readjust their perspective and their expectations to meet his reality. And what was true of the disciples is also true of us, isn't it? We tend to reinvent Jesus into whatever mold or shape we think is best. We read the story, but only parts of it. We forget that the story isn't, of Jesus isn't ours to tell or to craft. It really is Jesus's to craft and to tell. And we often don't even think about the story of Jesus starting until we see the name Jesus in Matthew chapter one in the begats. You know, that section of scripture where it's this person begat this person begat this person. Hey, Jesus shows up. We forget that the story of Jesus doesn't begin in Matthew one with the begats, but begins in Genesis one within the beginning God. Let me say it a little differently. When we forget the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus, when we read certain passages and not others, what's true of the disciples could be true of us. There is a part of Jesus that we don't know, maybe a part of Jesus that we would never know. The story of Jesus begins in Genesis chapter one, verse one, and when we have that in mind, our perspective and our expectations begin to match his reality. So this morning, as we consider the mission of Jesus, let's look at a passage of scripture where we see Jesus speaking in the New Testament, but that passage in the New Testament combines with a section of scripture in the Old Testament, and we get to see Jesus for who he really is, and we let Jesus tell the story. So if you have a Bible, would you open it? Open it to uh, to chapter four of Luke. Luke chapter four, we're gonna start in verse 14. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus, but he did create an account of Jesus' life by interviewing people and working with the disciples. And when we pick it up in chapter four, it's early on in Jesus's ministry, shortly after the temptation of Jesus, something we studied about a couple weeks ago, and we read this. Jesus returned to Galilee, verse 14, in the power of the spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, their churches. Everyone praised him. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, on church day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. He's invited to participate And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, meaning it's time for him to teach on the text. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As you listen to that text, as you read that text, if you're thinking that what Jesus said was was an audacious thing to say, then you would be correct, it was. Imagine if I did a similar thing here this morning. I ask you to open your Bibles, I point you to a certain text of scripture and I say, hey, that text of scripture, I'm fulfilling that right now as I stand on stage. Can you imagine how quickly the elders would be running and yanking me off stage because of that claim? But imagine if you grew up in Nazareth and you knew of Jesus, and you knew his family, and sure enough, here comes the popular teacher Jesus, and he's, he's at church today, and he's gonna do some teaching. You'd be listening to what he had to say, and in this case, when Jesus chooses the uh, section of scripture that he does, uh, portions of Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61, you know that he's not just picking any random text out of Isaiah. You know that what the, the text that he is picking 
is specific to what the Israelite nation thought that the Messiah, the deliverer, redeemer of the nation would look like, what he would do. And so when you see Jesus equating that text of scripture with his mission, he has your attention. Now for us this morning, I wanna make a point. Notice that Jesus is quoting at the end of that section, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Otherwise in scripture, it's known as the year of Jubilee. And you can see that year of Jubilee uh, created in Leviticus 25. But Jesus is specifically taking that year of Jubilee and equating it with his mission. So what's that all about? Well, it's important for us to know that in Jewish culture, there were several rhythms that God ordained and instituted to create a cultural rhythm. One of those uh, really gets its origin from when God is creating the world. He works for six days and rests on the seventh. We're familiar with that rhythm. That's the rhythm of Sabbath or a Sabbath day. The idea that we don't do any work, we enjoy God's presence and we trust in his provision that day. That's one of the rhythms. But another rhythm is a Sabbath year. It works the same way. You would work for six years and the seventh year you would also lie or let your lands lie fallow and you would trust in God that he would provide you for you that year and you would enjoy his presence throughout that entire year. Well, the year of Jubilee was seven iterations of a Sabbath year, it was the 50th year. So not only are you enjoying God's presence and trusting in his provision, but you know that all leased or mortgaged lands are to be returned to their original owners. All slaves and bonded laborers are to be freed. This is a big thing. But the interesting thing is, there is no clear evidence in scripture or otherwise that Israel ever celebrated a year of Jubilee. Most likely they never did. And so when Jesus is using this section of scripture, equating it to his mission, it's as though Jesus is saying, hey, hey guys, that communal celebration when the debts you can't pay get paid and the yoke that's on your neck that you can't seem to break gets broken, the celebration that you've never actually experienced in person. Well, now you have because I'm here and that's what I'm all about. What's interesting about the year of Jubilee and Jesus equating his mission with it is there are two elements to this. There's a redemptive piece and a restorative piece See, in the year of Jubilee, all slaves and bonded laborers were to be set free. And we can see that in Jesus' ministry, later on in the book of Luke, as Jesus is interacting with Zacchaeus, the wee little man that he was, okay, that Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. I came to redeem my people. And that's the part of the story that we remember. That's the part of the story we're attracted to for good reason. We need him to break the chains that we find ourselves in. We need him to save us from ourselves. We desperately need a savior. We need to be redeemed for we cannot save ourselves. So there's the redemptive piece, but there's also this restorative element to the year of Jubilee. And it's the idea that everything that went wrong in the last 50 years, you lost your house, been worked to the bone, you have debt up to your eyeballs, it's all to be undone. The people and the nation were to have a clean slate. So it's no wonder then that when Jesus takes the scroll and finds the section of scripture that he reads, that he does it intentionally because we see later in his life Through the cross and through the empty tomb, Jesus is doing both. He is redeeming his people and his creation, and he is restoring his people and his creation. We see Jesus touching the leper, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, those miracles we talked about last week. We see Jesus providing redemption from those things. And when we see Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, when we see him upholding women's rights and challenging the rich aristocracy, we see Jesus providing restoration. He is seeking to make things right. To put it plainly, in Jesus, our world is seeing all the evil undone. All of the evil undone. Now it's important for where we sit in our 21st century context to understand where this evil comes from. The fact that Jesus' redemptive mission and his restorative mission has its need and it's tied all the way back to Genesis 3. Because we see in the creation account, God creates 
everything. He forms it and he fills it and it's all good. He makes human beings to continue that good process. He makes us in his image, but he also gives us a choice, a loving choice to bear his image and be part of his kingdom or to bear our own image and set up our own kingdom. What ends up happening is Adam and Eve, they end up choosing to set up their own kingdom. It's not simply just a bad choice that they make. Really what they are doing is they are committing mutiny. They are committing mutiny. And we see that the consequences for Adam and Eve are more than they bargained for. Not only is their relationship with God broken, their relationship with one another is broken. Their relationship to all of created world, the physical world is broken. Their understandings of who God made them to be is broken. And we see these practically played out because when God shows up, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're hiding. And then they blame each other. Their command to be fruitful and multiply gets way, way harder. They look at their nakedness. They look at the way that God originally intended and made them and all they see is shame. And so when Jesus shows up, He didn't simply come to redeem and restore our relationship with God, though he did that, don't miss this, he did that, praise God for that. But when Jesus came, he also came to redeem and restore all the other broken relationships as well, all of them. That's why Jesus cares about things like social justice, slavery, the family unit, politics, education and schools, conservation, poverty. And what's true of Jesus should be true of us. That's why we should care about things like recycling, the PTO program at your kid's school, hunger insecurity on Evansville's South Side, refugees from Afghanistan that have been relocated to your area, access to healthcare, what's going on in Ukraine, registering to vote, or even beyond that, not just registering, voting, and even beyond that, staying informed. I heard a speaker recently said that abdication of personal responsibility is slavery abdication of personal responsibility and slavery. Yes, Jesus cares that we take a proper role in our local politic. He holds us accountable to that as well. He cares. To put it another way, Jesus cares about what we do in this building on Sunday morning, but he also cares about what we do outside of this building the rest of the week. He cares who we are in this building, but he also cares about who we are outside of this building the rest of the week. Jesus cares about what's inside your bubble, but he also cares about what's outside of your bubble. Jesus cares about who is inside your bubble, but he also cares about who is outside of your bubble. And you and I should too. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, puts it this way. He says, Jesus went out of his way to embrace the unloved and unworthy, the folks who matter not at all to the rest of society, for they embarrass us. We wish they'd go away. To prove that even nobodies matter infinitely to God, Jesus proved in person that God loves people, not as a race, not as a species, but as individuals. We matter to God. Let me say it differently. You matter. You matter to God. And God cares about your mission. So what does the mission of Jesus have to do with you and me? Everything. Everything. Everything, it's why you were made, it's why you are here this morning. To understand the mission of Jesus is to understand Jesus's mission for you. Yes, Jesus came to do certain things that were unique to him. And in that sense, his mission is unique, but part of the reason why Jesus came was so that we would know what living well looks like. We would know as a church what we are supposed to be about. To put it simply, part of Jesus's mission was to make it able for you to know yours. So what is your mission? It begs the question, doesn't it? What is your mission? Well, part of your mission is unique to you. I can't stand up here and tell you. You have to talk to him about that. 
You have to talk to him about that. But one place, and there are several, but one place where we see Jesus giving follower, his followers, his disciples, a, a clear declaration of what we should be doing and how we should be doing it is found in Matthew chapter 28, the end of Matthew's gospel, a section of scripture we often refer to as the Great Commission. What I would like to do is to read that and provide some practical points of application for us this morning. So if you've got a Bible, make sure you're there at Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 19. Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry. He's speaking with his disciples. He gives them this charge. He says, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here we see Jesus speaking about what we should be doing, how we should be doing it in light of what Jesus has already done. His redemptive and restorative mission becomes ours in some way. So what does Jesus say? What does he have to say to us this morning? Well, here's a couple points of application. Number one is this. As followers of Jesus, he makes it clear, we are to make disciples. Here it is. You can't make disciples if you aren't one. You can't make disciples if you aren't one. You can't give someone something that you don't have. You can't do it. Let me illustrate it for you this way. I'm an IU grad. I enjoy IU basketball. And let's say as I speak to you all this morning, I need some help. I need some help speaking about how great IU basketball is. And let's say I invite Mr. P. Heller, Philip Heller, up to the stage. Now, if you know Phil, you know that he is a die-hard UK fan. He bleeds blue. If you go into his office, you're gonna see his shrine, okay? It's a sin. We're working on it, Okay. We're working on it. But let's say I invited him up here and I said, hey, Phil, what would you have to say about IU basketball? Would you help me out? It's gonna be the absolute shortest sermon you've ever heard because he has nothing to say, nothing to offer. But let's say I asked Phil to come up and say, hey, Phil, would you mind saying some, something positive about UK basketball? I promise you this, it's gonna be the longest sermon you've ever heard in this room. The absolute longest. Why? Because he has something to offer. Let me put it a different way. Are you a disciple worth reproducing? Are you a disciple worth reproducing? In your walk with Jesus, is it an authentic walk? Do you know him or are you faking it? Because God can't bless who you pretend to be. God can't bless who you pretend to be. You, there's a, an important piece to our walk with God. If we're gonna make disciples of other people, it's ours to own with him. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is this, your feelings are not a thermostat. Your feelings are not a thermostat. Our feelings don't determine our reality. Our relationship with Jesus does. So you may not feel sent, emphasis on feel, you may not feel sent, but that doesn't mean that you aren't. You are sent to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, the people that you interact with in the workplace, those that you interact with at the grocery store, the doctor's office. You are sent. And notice that the text says that we're sent to all nations. Let me be clear, that means this nation and all the other ones as well. It reminds me of when I grew up. My mom was a great cook. Every once in a while for the vegetable of the night, she would make lima beans. Okay, lima beans. And so if we were gonna be dismissed from the table, my mom would make it clear, hey, if you wanna be dismissed, you have to eat all of your lima beans. And I promise you this, she meant all of them. Every last one. So when Jesus is speaking to all nations, he meaning this people in this country and people in other countries, people we recognize and people we don't, people that speak our language that people we don't, people that are convenient to us and people that aren't. We are sent to all nations. And that can be a lot to take in. Let me make it a little bit more concrete for us. God has placed you wherever you live in a place where there are probably people that live around you in some ways. 
know them. Know who your neighbors are. Get a piece of paper out, write their names. Make sure you know their stories. Take, have them over for dinner or take them out for dinner. You don't have to pray and ask God for his will on that one. You can do that. You can do that. The second thing I would say is get uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable. If there's ever an idol that we worship in this country is the idol of comfort. It is the idol of comfort. So we need to get uncomfortable. And ultimately that's what Jesus does. Yancey goes on in his book, he says this, Jesus moved the emphasis from God's holiness, an exclusive thing, to God's mercy, an inclusive thing. Instead of the message, no undesirables allowed, he proclaimed, in God's kingdom, there are no undesirables. By going out of his way, by going out of his way, by getting uncomfortable, as he ate with, met with Gentiles, ate with sinners, touched the sick, he extended the realm of God's mercy. That is what we are called to do. We are sent and we are sent to everybody. Now, a side note, oftentimes when we think of people being sent, we're thinking about people being sent to another country, missionaries, those extra holy people, okay? Let me debunk that for you for a second. I got a finance degree from IU. I never thought that I would ever end up on the mission field. It wasn't gonna happen. But in the end, my wife and I said yes, and we spent three years at Sunlight Academy in port pay Haiti. I never thought that I would work for a church. I ended up returning to the church that I grew up going to up on the northwest side of Indianapolis in the suburbs. Never thought I'd work for a church. I definitely never thought that I would leave family and friends, people I love dearly, to come down to a place that I've not really ever been to, Evansville, Newburgh, to work here at Crossroads. I also thought I would never preach. Never say never with God. For my own life, I've seen this theme emerge. We need to ask and we need to wait for an answer. We need to wait for an answer. Now, maybe you say, as you're sitting there, you're saying, ah, maybe I've said never. Maybe I'm not listening. Ryan, is there anything you could say to that? I would say yes. The first thing I would say is, read chapter eight from Yancey's book. He goes into great detail about the mission of Jesus and how it intersects with your life. I would recommend you do that. The other thing I would recommend is to check out Explore. It's a resource here that we offer it's an interactive experience where you can step into the lives of those that are in our community and outside of our community. Staff are there to help you walk alongside you so you can see what opportunities there are, practically speaking, for our vision to live and love like Jesus, for it to be real in your life. It happens each Sunday of the month. I'm sorry, once a month, the fourth Sunday of the month. Guess what today is? Fourth Sunday of the month. At 1030 in room 225, you can participate in that. And you can walk through some of these practical ways that you can take the next step. You can do that. When I consider the mission of Jesus, what was unique for Jesus and what he has invited me to, I begin to see a part of Jesus that I never knew. When I think about what my son had to say about seeing God up close, I'm forced to take a step closer, eliminate the distance, and allow my perspective to adjust and match his reality. And you know what? Coming close to Jesus, it really isn't as complex or as scary as we make it out to be sometimes. It is daunting at times, and if you feel that way, remember that following Jesus is a journey. Every, every step in pursuit of him counts. Being here in this room on Sunday morning counts. Picking up your Bible for the first time in a week, a month, a year, it counts. It's meaningful. Realizing that it's been too long since you've been in a small group or a support group and deciding to take that next step, it counts. That's why we've created this resource. It's called the Roadmap. It's divided in three sections, 
section is titled, Be With God, Be With Others, Be With Sent. All it is is a collection of different resources, a, a, an opportunity to take the next step, whatever that looks like for you, so that this vision, living and loving like Jesus, becomes your in a, yours in a tangible way. Let me close this way. In a whimsical sort of way, when I think about what it would be like to be close to Jesus, to see him up close, my mind goes to a movie that came out in 1991 called Hook. Anybody familiar with that movie, Hook? It's a story of an adult Peter Pan who returns to Never Never Land. He has no idea who he is and no idea what he's supposed to be doing. That adult Peter Pan character is played by Robin Williams and about halfway through the film, you see this scene where the current leader of the Lost Boys, his name is Rufio, he has a sword and he draws a line in the sand and he tells the Lost Boys, hey, if you wanna follow this adult Peter Pan, you can do it. But if you think that I am the real Peter Pan, you come over with me. And everybody runs to Rufio, everybody, except one, except one. There is one lost boy that wants to look a little closer. So he pulls Robin Williams down on his knees. He comes face to face with him. He takes off his glasses. He's looking for something. He begins to move the wrinkles, to stretch the cheeks. He's looking for something. And this inquisitive look on this boy turns to this joyous look. And what the boy says, he can't yell it out loud. Essentially, all he does is he can whisper. He says this, he says, oh, there you are, Peter. Oh, there you are, Peter. Aren't we all lost boys, lost girls, needing to take a closer look at Jesus? Every step towards Jesus matters. I encourage you, take a step today. The God, the Jesus that you may never have known loves you, likes you, wants to be with you. All you need to do is take a closer look. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that you are here and grateful that you listen. But Father, we are, maybe ashamed is too strong of a word, but man, we are sorry and apologetic that there's been too much distance between you and us, a distance that we cannot afford. But Father, we are also grateful and we see it true that you have been pursuing us. You continue to pursue us. And so Father, would, as you pursue us, would you help us to in turn pursue you, to take a practical step to walk with you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.